Let us help you reach your peak in retirement. It's time for Your Retirement Elevated. Oh, we're so glad you're here for another Your Retirement Elevated podcast. Walter Storholt alongside Scott Dugan, co-founder and managing partner of Elevated Retirement Group, serving you throughout the Kansas City metro area and also all across the country. Find us online and listen to past episodes of the show at listentoscott.com. Scott, you ready for a good show today? I am, Walter. I'm super excited to be on today. Well, looking forward to the conversation today because now this may sound like it's going to be a bit, I don't know, in-depth or intense or like inside baseball, I guess, when it comes to the financial world. But don't let that be intimidating. It's actually really fascinating to talk about this kind of stuff when it comes to our finances. And I guarantee you, if you listen to today's show, you're going to learn something about yourself and the way that you view money, the way you view the markets, the way that you view something in the financial world, you're going to learn something or maybe notice something you haven't learned before. We're going to be talking about, and this is where it sounds like it's going to get complicated, Dalbar's Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior Study. It's a big mouthful, isn't it, Scott? It is, and it sounds like it should come with a pocket protector. Right, exactly, exactly. But let's break it down and make it a little bit easier about what this is all about. So Dalbar, first of all, this is a company, Scott, that has just invested a ton of time, energy, and over that process has garnered a lot of respect in the financial world, right? Uh, They have over three decades that they've been studying not only investor psychology, investor behavior, but they started out studying the difference between investment return versus investor return, meaning investments are quoted as at a rate of return, but an individual's experience can be different. And there's a lot of factors that go into the reason why most investors lag the market returns because of a lot of the things we're going to talk about today. So this is why this is so important because, and I'm sure you can speak to this, Scott, before we get into the you know examples here, but do you have people that come into your office and in the past they talk about how maybe they made a wrong turn, maybe they made a mistake? I'm sure you're uncovering mistakes all the time. How many of those times was it because of an emotional decision gone wrong? I would say a large majority of the time it is because of making emotional, irrational decisions. And one of the big things I will sit down with when I'm sitting there talking to a client on the phone or in person, and if something's going on and they're asking questions that don't quite make sense, a little out of character, I always ask them, so is this coming from your head or your heart? <laughs> you know, are, are we being logical or are we being emotional about it? And I'm not saying that being emotional is bad, but we want to make fact-based, logical decisions free of emotion, mis- misunderstandings, and misconceptions. One of the greatest things we can do as an advisor is to get people to make decisions that are truly in their best interest. So over all of these years that Dalbar has been doing this study, they have found that you know the biggest reason for underperformance by investors who participate in financial markets over time is the psychology of the thing. Behavioral biases, these decisions that we're trying to make about financial issues, our emotions that get involved in that lead to bad decision-making a lot of the time. In fact, they identify it as the single largest contributor 
to underperformance when it comes to financial decisions. And so what they've done is identified nine of the irrational investment behavior biases, and we're going to go through those nine on today's program to help you identify. Maybe you'll identify with a couple of these. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll say, oh, that's not, that doesn't sound like me. But if you identify with one of these nine, I think getting that knowledge can then help us maybe problem solve, maybe keep from having that emotion kind of rule the day one of these days in the future and lead us to a bad decision. So let's walk through these nine, Scott. The first one on the list is loss aversion. What's that? So loss aversion is the fear of loss that leads to a withdrawal of your money at the worst possible time. This is also known as panic selling. And so it's one of these where, you know, the market has a pullback or a correction and the thought is, oh my gosh, this is going to continue. I'm going to lose capital. So we make an emotional decision and bail out. And so that's what loss aversion is. We, we don't want to lose anymore, so let's get out. And the problem with that is that if we are going to bail out at that point, that means we're abandoning our investment discipline, number one. And if we're going to do that, we need to know where are we going to go to next? What is our option where we're going to? And so loss aversion, people are rewarded for their time in the market. It's not necessarily what they're invested in. That has a definitely a factor to it. But exposure to the market over the long haul, that's one of the most, the largest determining factors of success. All right. So that's loss aversion, one of those top things on the list that I think ails probably quite a few folks. We know that, you know, fear plays into a lot of our hearts. And I think we'll see that as a common thread through probably some of these different examples. So that was one thing identified by this Dalbar study. Something else that they say is an investor behavior to be aware of is narrow framing. What is narrow framing? So narrow framing is the situation where you're making decisions about one part of the portfolio without considering the effects on the total allocation that's been put together. So an example, someone's looking through their portfolio that's well diversified and they said, well, well, you know what? Large cap did really well, but my mid cap stocks did horribly. So let's just get out of this one part of small cap and move it all to large cap. Well, as soon as you do that, large cap is going to dwindle and lag and small cap's going to take off. And so when you're talking about narrow framing, you've got to make sure if you're, we're making moves, we're doing it in a holistic viewpoint. And I always kid around, I said, having a well-diversified portfolio is going to be boring. And it's always going to mean that I'm going to have to apologize for something because something's always going to lag because if everything is working lockstep and everything's going up all at once, well, that's a recipe for disaster when we get a correction or a big market pullback. A lot of people kind of fall into that category, Scott, of doing narrow framing. I would imagine that's a common, common issue among folks. Very common, yes. Okay. So narrow framing. Make sure you're looking at the whole picture, not just one little part of the financial uh, situation that you might be in. They also identify in this study this thing called anchoring. What is anchoring? So anchoring is the process of remaining focused on what happened previously and not adapting to the changing market and economy. So just because something happened at a specific period of time doesn't mean that's going to repeat itself in the future. And as human beings, we try to look and say, well, for certainty in life, if we had a good experience in the past, we will hope that that just continues. And we all know that doesn't happen. All life is about ebb and flow. 
Okay. And so we always have to adapt. And in today's world, I can tell you, looking back, you know, when I got started in this business 18, 19 years ago, things did not move as quickly as they do today. Movements in the market were much slower in the propagation of information via the media was much, much slower 18 years ago. So we've got to adapt and we've got to understand, just like in today's world, market you know, fluctuations are much faster than they were ever before, but the market's also much bigger and much more intertwined than it ever has been. So remember, we, we've got to make sure we're looking towards the future. We always want to learn from the past and keep history in mind, but it's not a guarantee that's continuing to go going forward. Anchoring seems to me like a tough one to overcome, Scott, because it's just such a comfort to look at what's happened in the past and knowing what to expect is very comforting and kind of having ex- going in with expectations. Just having expectations is a comforting feeling because then you can at least have good evaluation of, okay, was it the same as last time? Was it better? Was it worse? So it's tough for people to kind of go into those new thresholds and new territories. That's probably why that one happens so much. You're absolutely correct. That's why. So be aware of anchoring. I know I can identify with that one certainly a little bit. What about the mental accounting? That's the fourth of the nine behavioral issues, uh, irrational behavior biases that this Dalbar study outlined. Mental accounting. So what happens is someone will look at a statement and they're going to separate out performance of certain investments. And they'll, they'll mentally keep track of this like a little scoreboard and justify successes and failures. And I can tell you that the return, the aggregate return or the return of the whole portfolio over time, that's the most important factor. And we want to make sure that it's invested in a way that is appropriate for your situation, that's going to get you a high probability of success with your certain goals. So that mental accounting piece, again, it's when you go to the coffee shop and you're always talking to people, I know this is big, especially like on the golf course in the 19th hole, I always hear a you know, people talk about, well, you know, my buddy, he's done X, you know, in his portfolio. I said, well, how well does he tell fishing stories? Is what I do. I mean, most of the time they're cherry picking and saying, oh, yeah, I, I made this fantastic pick with this one stock. But they don't know is it's $2,000 of their, you know, $800,000 portfolio. So mental accounting, you just got to be careful and not fall into that trap. Not a financial example, but I did a lot of mental accounting when I played goalie. I played goalie in basically every sport growing up, hockey, soccer, you know, it didn't matter what the sport. I was I was definitely going to play goalie, lacrosse, throw that in there as well. And, you know, obviously being destined to be a uh, broadcaster one day, I would always broadcast the games from my goalie position. And, of course, at the end of the game, you kind of picked the MVP of the game or the player of the game. And so I'd be in my head broadcasting who was going to win the you know player of the game award. And, of course, you know, I was always a leading candidate to win that award. But even when we lost by 17 goals in one of those games, there were two or three saves that we'd make sure we really focused on in that post-game press conference that really highlighted the goalie as the key player of the day. So I think I was doing a little <laughs> mental accounting when I played sports back in the day. That's a perfect example. <laughs> of that. (laughs) Just doing that with your finances. Um, A little bit different there. All right. Lack of diversification. We won't go into any further depth of how bad of a goalie I was. Uh, (laughs) Lack of diversification. That's got to be a huge problem. And that's a word that certainly people are familiar with, diversification. Sure. And so from a practical application, when we do an evaluation for a prospective family that's going to 
potentially come to the firm, I'll look at their statements and let's say they've got four different statements with four different custodians. You know, they've got a Scott trade, a Merrill Lynch, Vanguard, you name it. And then there's this long list of these mutual funds most of the time. And you read through these names, it's like, wow, I must be so diversified with all these fancy names and these, these mutual funds. But what you find out when we do our analysis is that you don't really know what's owned inside of those mutual funds. You don't know what those companies are investing in until you x-ray that and take it apart. What most people find is they're not nearly as diversified as they thought they were. Most of those funds own a lot of the same holdings. And so, you know, it's fine. You don't feel that pain when the market's doing really well. But when you do feel it's the most painful is when you see market corrections or pullbacks because your basket is much smaller than you think it is. And so when you think about you know, lack of diversification, what diversification is goes along with something called asset allocation. So picture this as you're listening to this. Assets are like baskets, all right? And diversification are different assets, and think of those as eggs. And then inside each of those baskets, you should have a, a lot of different types of eggs in each of those baskets. And so we need to spread out across the baskets, and we need a multitude of different eggs across those baskets. And the most important part is you probably should have someone you trust helping watch over those basket of eggs so we don't make emotional, irrational decisions and break a lot of those eggs or crack into them at the wrong time. That's really, uh, I think, an important one to highlight. Lack of diversification going to be a very prevalent issue when it comes to these irrational investment behavior biases. Lack of diversification pops up a lot. What about herding? And this is different than what my uh, half corgi, half border collie dog tends to do to us around the house, bumping into us, herding us around from room to room where she thinks we need to go. What is herding in the financial world? <laughs> Ironically, we have a blue healer shepherd mix. Nice. Okay. And uh, you know what I'm also, talking about. <laughs> she also loves to herd people into different rooms to yep. do her job. Well, herding is an H E R D I N G, not hurting, but herding is the following the masses. And when you listen to the media, and I call it media magnification, it's very interesting when you listen to the words they use. Because going back, I replayed some episodes of some CNBC interviews, and they all talk about the market crashes that have been happening. Okay. Well, by definition, we've not had a market crash in a long time. We've had market pullbacks. And we've had a 2 3 5% you know, pullback, but we haven't had a crash. But people don't necessarily know the difference between a crash and a pullback and a correction. And so hurting is saying, oh, my gosh, I'm listening to the news and, you know, the market's going down and you're at the office at the coffee machine and going, I went to cash. I think this is getting ugly. Hmm. You know, I, I read this online investment <laughs> newsletter and they said, you know, it's, it's coming and, you know, we need to go to cash. And so you just want to make sure that you don't want to follow those masses because what happens that leads to buying high or selling low. And those are the, we don't want to do things. We want to buy low and sell high and have control of those things. I can see how some of these behaviors then start to compound on one another. How like 
mental accounting. We talked about that one a little bit and how the golf course buddy might start you know, cherry-picking the best investments and how that can then lead to hurting. If you tend to be a herder and you might follow the crowd and you're around people who are doing a lot of mental accounting, those things start to work together to take you in a worse direction where you're now trying to piggyback on things that they've done. And really, you're basing that off of the, what would that be, the anchoring, right, of things that had happened previously. And you're trying to latch on to the success after it's already occurred. Oh, absolutely. So again, we've covered so far six of these nine different irrational investment behavior biases that Dalbar has outlined in this really cool study. I know you've identified with a couple of these so far. (laughs) Another one here, Scott, is regret. We've all felt that tinge of regret over time. We have, and and what it sets us up for is a situation where we don't perform necessary actions due to the fact we've got regret about a past failure. And so, you know, say, gosh, we, I didn't do it correctly last time. So it almost paralyzes people to not be able to take action when it's clearly in their best interest. So, you know, regret, I tell you, the past is the past. Uh, We've got to move on. And mostly we just need to learn from our past mistakes. But regret, especially when it comes to investing and doing the right thing, you know, about your hard-earned retirement funds has no place in that decision-making process. Yeah, regret is certainly a tough emotion to deal with, no matter the topic, but especially in the financial world, it can be a hard one to shake. We've got two others to cover here, Scott. Another one is media response. I knew we'd get to the media eventually. Yes, my favorite thing to pick on. Media response, I call it media magnification. And you know, we I said a little bit earlier, you know, the media talking about the market fluctuations as crashes. And let's face it, the media has a role in our society, but the media, the way it is set up right now, it's kind of a crumbling structure. And it's this race to get people to continue to get their eyes on their channel or their media. And so that's why you're seeing all these sensationalized articles and headlines, because they've got to be sensational to get people to tune in and to watch. And I think we've talked about it before on the podcast, people's attention spans are shrinking and people just don't have the desire or capacity to, you know, follow things through. And the news cycle is so fast that, you know, something can pop up. It's the hot item that only runs until they find something else that is the hot thing to talk about. So my words of wisdom when it comes to the media, and if you are you know, tuning in, there's some good stuff out there, but if you hear something and it's causing some emotional response, I want you to stop, take a deep breath, and ask yourself this first question. What I'm listening to, does it apply to me and my family's situation? Right? If it doesn't, Stop listening and don't be stressed out. Okay, <laughs> that wasn't a hard uh, line of thing. That wasn't to a hard one. No, I'm simple. I, I studied even elementary education teacher. So, <laughs> and if you do find says, well, you know, this does potentially apply to me and my family. The next question is, well, how much does it or can it affect you? And in reality, most of these things within a short news cycle, they're a blip and they don't really have any bearing on the long-term success of your retirement. You know, so just stop, make sure you're understanding where's the information coming from, what is their motive behind producing this information, and really, most importantly, 
does it affect you? And if it does, how much? And if you take those steps, you're going to find out that it really doesn't have that much effect on your overall life. Great guidance there. I know a lot of us need some help when it comes to deciphering that media response and the way that, uh, you know, not to use one of these latest buzzwords out there, but the way it triggers us, you know, from an emotional standpoint of when we see things in the media that we either don't agree with or that we do agree with, the kind of battle lines that get drawn and how it makes our emotions kind of run, a, run wild. Uh, the media has a strange effect that way. It does. And I actually just read a study along those lines. I think if you polled a lot of people, you know, here we're here in the Midwest. I think we're pretty level-headed for the most part. But if you would ask people a question, you know, are things going crazy on college campuses across the country? Are they having wild protests and you just you can't talk about anything having discussions? And the most recent study I just finished reading last week is that they have a map where they track all of these protests and all these outbreaks. And surprisingly enough, most of those are concentrated in California and the northeast of the country. Mm-hmm. There's very few of those things that are happening throughout the majority of the country. But if you tuned in to the media, you would think every college around is having crazy protests. But that's not the case. But we're led to believe those things. So, again, just make sure we're, we're steadfast with our thought process. Yeah, take all that with a grain of salt, that's for sure. The last emotion we can touch on here in this Dalbar study, Scott, that they identified, again, these nine irrational investment behavior biases. The last one is such a positive thing. It's optimism. How are we going to throw optimism under the gutter? It it is true because as human beings, you know, we have to have a certain level of optimism about the future. I have this great favorite saying that I got from a – author named Dan Sullivan. He said, happy, successful people always envision a future that's bigger than their present and their past. And I think that's so true. So we definitely need optimism and to want things to be better. But we have to be cautious and tread cautiously and make sure that we're not overly optimistic, making assumptions that tend to lead to rather dramatic reversions when met with reality. It's just making sure that we have proper a viewpoint of the future. And again, it goes back to that making decisions with a clear head, make decisions that are based on factual, logical information, and discarding or changing the mis- misconceptions or misunderstandings that we let seep into our, our decision-making process. So Not being a Debbie Downer, but be optimistic, (laughs) but be cautiously optimistic going forward. That's the key. So we outlined nine of these, obviously, and and not everyone's going to identify with all nine of them. But if you had to throw a dart at the dartboard and pick a client, pick somebody listening to today's show, which emotions, which decision making, you know, issues here do you think would be the most likely to hit on the most people? Where do you think is the most, you know, biggest issue and most need for improvement? I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the hurting effect following the masses and loss aversion are the two biggest drivers and the two biggest topics that I encounter on a weekly basis. And those two things compound the issues that investor, the mistakes they make time and time again. And so if you can just focus on staying out of those two areas, your success, their probability of success dramatically improves. 
And I can tell you that I made a decision years ago in this business, and I was with a speaker, a mentor of mine. His name's Nick Murray, and I've read all of his books. I study his information. And he basically said, you've got two choices as a financial planner. You can go out and try to be the best investment selection manager. You can do all that research, do all that studying. And he said, the problem is that there's a very small group of people that outperform the markets and we don't really have any control over the markets do. I mean, they're a, they're a beast. He said, you can either do that. He said, which very few people achieve, or you can become proficient at helping your clients realize what their goals are give them a solid investment discipline and financial plan for them to follow that's going to give them a high level of success, probably of success to make it through their retirement and give them a process to help them manage their emotions and give them a step-by-step process to help them make better decisions about their hard-earned dollars. And so when I heard that, I said, you know what? I want to be a proficient planner I want to understand our clients. I want to walk them through a process that makes them comfortable. And I want to walk them through a process where that is, they make great decisions that are in their benefit and gets them through hopefully many, many years of retirement. It's nice to have that full picture. And I think that's what probably a lot of people are missing when it comes to putting together that financial plan. And it's that ability to look at the holistic picture and how these emotions, how we feel about things mix together with the numbers and the data and the finances to lead us ultimately to uh, the, the financial plan is kind of a living, breathing thing. It's not just this you know, scattering of numbers. It's got goals and dreams and wants all mixed into the equation. It's kind of a, I don't know, not to steal a phrase about our, our country, but it's kind of a living document in a way from a personal standpoint. Absolutely. We start with a financial plan, but that's simply a roadmap. It's a planning process that ever evolves throughout the different parts of your life. Because things change, your life changes, you go through different transitions. And yeah, we've got to be prepared to deal with the curveballs that life sometimes throws at us. Well, Scott, if I'm dealing with one of these issues, one of these irrational investment behavior biases that we outlined on today's show, maybe it's anchoring or hurting or regret or I'm too optimistic, one of the ones that we talked about today, what do I do if I'm not really sure how to fix these things on my own? What's it look like to start addressing that? Well, I can tell you that the best thing that you can do, see if you're one of our clients listening today, we're here to have discussions and be a sounding board with you. And I can tell you, having discussions about these topics, people will call, will set a time or meet. And most, I can't remember a time where I had a conversation with a rational person and they discussed or described one of these things they're experiencing after we walked through and discussed that and and really dissected of why they're thought that way or why they're feeling that way, that they didn't come up better on the other side of that. And I did too. Because if I have more of those interactions guiding people through that process, so I think it's that it starts with a conversation. If you've got something that's lingering or bothering you or something you talk to someone about, let's have a dialogue. Let's talk through it because we want to, if it's a true issue, we want to solve it. And that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast that we send out an e-newsletter that you get quarterly newsletters in the mail. You get special reports that come out 
because I'm always want wanting to keep you up to date with what's going on. I will give you a rationale for what's going on or what's happened and give you a framework to have good discussions. And one of my clients gave, gave me the greatest compliment. He goes, we listen to your podcast or we read your material. He goes, I always feel better and more prepared to, if we go to a dinner party to have discussions with people. <laughs> that's <laughs> goes, awesome. It is. I said, that's perfect. And so I said, that's really what it's about. I want you to be able to internalize this stuff and be able to have discussions. And he said, you know, sometimes, you know, people say these crazy things, you know, that they think about the markets, the economy. He goes, well, you know, this is kind of what I read. And he kind of, he explains, we know what was in an article and he goes, people, the light bulb always comes on. So he, he feels good about it. And I feel great about it because through information and knowledge, we're improving their lives and lowering their stress levels. And that's, that's one of the, one of the guiding premises for us. We want to educate our clients keep them on track and let them worry about living the retirement they want and deserve. We'll worry about all the other details. You know, that client is smiling, listening to the podcast right now. Yes, I hope so. I can't wait for the next party. (laughs) And you can hear it now. When he hears somebody talking, he rubs his hands together. Well, I was uh, looking at a Dalbar study recently. Now, it was on quantitative analysis of investor behavior study, if you know what I mean. And we were talking about uh, anchoring in that article. And it sounds like what you're going through here. <laughs> and I do have a lot of clients that are engineers, and this client is an engineer. Awesome. So it'll awesome. be perfect. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Getting into it. Fantastic. I can see it right now. Well, if you've got questions for Scott, maybe you're new to the podcast. Maybe you've never worked with the team at Elevated Retirement Group. Maybe you're obviously a longtime listener and client as well. But if you've got questions, I just remind you the number to call to get in touch with Scott is 913-393-4724. 913-393-4724. And we're always online at listentoscott.com where you can subscribe to the podcast and listen to past episodes. Listentoscott.com, your place to go. Scott, thanks for walking us through all of these different you know, findings from this study. I thought that was really cool, and we'll look forward to another good podcast with you next time. Sounds good, Walter. Thanks a lot. For Scott, I'm Walter. We'll talk to you next time on Your Retirement Elevated. Investment advisory services offered through Elevated Capital Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.